I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending February 21st. In this episode, high-tech companies keep springing up to enter the automotive market. Many of them are promising to make cars that are fully autonomous. They're doing it, they say, because they want to save lives. Semicast research analyst Colin Barndon is one of the world's leading experts on automotive sensing systems, and he's not buying that argument. We've got a discussion with Barndon on the subject. Also, there's a furious amount of activity in the electronics industry to develop technology to enable a rapidly growing list of products to be able to recognize voice commands. Voice recognition, who's making it happen, and how soon will we be talking to our washing machines? We keep getting told that autonomous vehicles will save lives. Okay, yes, but so will driver assist technology, and probably by the same margin. Generally speaking, the companies that favor the adoption of driver assist technologies tend to be the established automotive companies. These are the companies that have been around for decades and decades and have an enormous amount of experience with road safety. The companies that tend to favor autonomous vehicles, AVs, are the high-tech companies that have sprung up in recent years. Generally speaking, high-tech companies tend to subscribe to the credo, move fast and break things, a line made famous by Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. EE Times has been covering technology for nearly 50 years. We can attest that moving fast and breaking things has been marvelously effective for companies that have developed web browsers and smartwatches and video game systems and robot vacuum cleaners. We think it is a reckless, irresponsible, and dangerous attitude to have, however, when it comes to building systems that have to be operated safely, and that most certainly includes cars. We're not the only ones. Semicast research analyst Colin Barndon is considered one of the world's leading experts in vehicle sensors, the fundamental technology that enables modern vehicles to sense their surroundings and avoid collisions. EE Times International Editor Junko Yoshida called up Colin to talk to him about his latest articles for EE Times, in which he has clearly lost his patience with the false piety and the hubris from AV proponents. So, you know, I would like to um, get everybody's attention to what uh, you have been writing about. And, you know, I wouldn't call it this a soapbox, but uh, this is something you and I both agree. And I think there are a lot of uh, things to um, chew on. So explain the premise. What prom- prompted you to write this piece? Um, tell, tell us the premise. Explain. Okay, so I think it would be fair to say that I've listened now to, I think, a a lifetime's worth of podcasts in which I listen to people from the AV industry tell me that uh, autonomous driving and AVs are about saving lives. Um, And it's just sounding too we work to me, you know, elevating the world's consciousness, uh, a bit evangelical. um, And uh, really, you know, I'm just putting down some of my thoughts about an alternative point of view. It is true. You know, uh, the last time you wrote the column that, you know, just stop saying, you know, you're in it for saving people's lives. Just say that you're in it for money, right? <laughs> exactly that. I mean, well, what I'm looking at really is, you know, is this about saving lives or is this about controlling lives? And, um, you, you know, if, if, 
if I want to if I want to travel somewhere, you know, I want the choice of whether I take a, a human driven taxi, a machine driven taxi, or if I want to drive myself. Yeah. Um, and I can see a future really with the, the tech industry. What it looks to me like they're working towards is essentially removing the the steering wheel from human hands, so that we can we can be driven around um, by them. Um, you know, and, and and I'm not really comfortable with that. You know, as a as somebody who who likes freedom, who likes the ability to drive uh, where I want, when I want, how I want, yeah. Um, yeah. and that's really the concerns that I've got here. Yeah. So, um, you know, I just realized that I was going back uh, the history of Waymo or since Google started this project. Actually, it's been 10 years, right? And last year, they claimed, the Waymo claimed that uh, their autonomous vehicles are driven more than 10 million miles in the real world and more than 10 billion miles in simulation. I think that's uh, their claim. Actually, I, I, I take a pleasure looking at the advertisement video clip they put together because uh, what, it, what they're claiming inside the, uh, you know, there's a software engineer comes out and talks about that, that how the autonomous cars can not only, you know, do perception very well, but they can think ahead and predict what's the next move is with the person who are, you know, standing on the next of the, you know, the right next to the road or something. I mean, it's just, I just can't believe their audacity to to say that this is all already true because this is not true, right? The the use of these vehicles looks to be incredibly limited to me. Um, I mean, we've seen them in the the sort of the Chandler Gilbert um, geofence, um, you know, there, there's some uses of this technology in San Francisco and, uh, you know, the, the, the different companies are, are trialing in different areas. But I, I always look right. at this and I would say to myself, you know, so what? I mean, congratulations, Waymo. So you, you've reinvented the, the, the human taxi driver. Um, and, uh, you know, how exactly is this elevating the world's consciousness or how is this going to go about saving lives? Um, my, my, my entire premise is let's get driver assistance and monitoring technology into absolutely every vehicle with four wheels or more first, and then let the market decide if there is any validity or any advantage in self-driving technology whatsoever. Um, and that, that's essentially the premise that I've got. And, and really, that's what we're seeing in Europe, uh, is, is, is that position being driven very much by Euro NCAP and the European Commission. Um, and the United States and, and NHTSA seems to be on a, a completely different path. Speaking of path, actually, you explained in your latest column, the left fork and the right fork. <laughs> Explain <laughs> what left fork is and what the right fork is. So left fork essentially is all about the, uh, the, the swashbuckling flamboyant AV tech industry and its, uh, its wonderful promises of a, a, a utopia of, of accident-free travel. Uh, in which we have flawless machine drivers and everybody's happy and uh, nobody dies and there is no suffering um, eventually. And yeah. whenever it is eventually, uh, I don't know, and I don't think John Krafczyk knows, and I don't think really anybody in the uh, the autonomous uh, driving community knows. Um, and then I'm looking at the right fork, which is the the boring, predictable traditional automakers who they take their time and they think about what they're doing and and they're going down a totally different path now it looks to me really about what you could call collaborative driving where the human driver and the machine monitor the machine backup if you like they work together in synchronization and the humans are responsible for reasoning 
um, and the machines are responsible for driver assistance and uh, monitoring for uh, fatigue in the human driver. Yeah. And that looks to me like very achievable, very deliverable, very sensible, which is precisely really what you would expect from uh, the traditional automakers who've uh, been around a long time and kind of know a thing or two about uh, technology change and, uh, and events happening in the world. Yeah. All right. I have a couple of follow-up questions on that. You know, when I was uh, first reading your um, uh, column, I was thinking like, okay, here's Colin talking about left fork and right fork. You know, as Yogi Berra said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. So isn't it exactly the, the reason why companies like Ford and GM has a separate company like um, Argo AI or the uh, Cruise, it's because they feel that this is an opportunity. They, they may not be seriously thinking that this is going to, uh, you know, make a big money, but they, they really need to take it now so that they won't be far behind. Is that the theory you think? I mean, that, that's a possibility. But essentially, so really what it looks to me like some of these companies, they're hedging their bets. Um, really, yeah. and a lot of the automakers, they're backing um, separate companies uh, to develop this technology. Um, but really, if we look at where the uh, the advisory and the legislative bodies are, are pushing the technology now, it's very much towards much more simple driver assistance and monitoring technologies, which really they fit into level two. And whether mm. or not there's really a future for level four, it, it, it might be that there's true, you know, at some point in the future. Um, but we saw it yeah. from uh, from ZF at, at CES. They came out and they said that there's really no 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 requirement for consumer AV vehicles, privately owned uh, autonomous vehicles. Yeah. And essentially, really, what it comes down to is that the technology is just too expensive. And you know, it, it, humans have got you know perfectly good vision systems, perfectly good re uh, reasoning systems um, already. Essentially, what we need help with is um, a distraction and fatigue, um, and essentially driver assistance and, and driver monitoring. And that that's very much to me looks to be the the direction that the technology is moving in now. Well, you actually mentioned that um, you know increasing a number of. Uh, ADAS features that are now being required down the line by Euro NCAP, for example, like automatic emergency brake, AEB. I wrote a story recently uh, based on some of the conversations that I, that I had with uh, different people that AAA last year did the testing and the results was actually astoundingly bad, right? And part of the reason, because I think a lot of automakers are using not so expensive equipment and not so much redundancy in there. When I saw the video, I could not believe the why is the, this ADAS car not seeing the person right in front of it, right? What's your take on that? I mean, why AEB so bad? So there's so much work still to be done, but essentially that's what you can do with the, you know, 100, maybe 200 bucks of um, budget, which the OEMs can can put aside to that. So if uh, uh, anybody follows Oliver Cameron on Twitter, um, CEO of Voyage, uh, he's been talking a lot recently about something, a technology called Safe Stop. Um, oh. And it, essentially, it's a, a, a Velodyne LiDAR. Um, I think it's an uh -huh. NVIDIA Xavier GPU. Um, and, you know, this is hundreds of dollars um, worth of, of technology. Uh -huh. It's just not cost effective in uh, right. a, a mass market production vehicle where, you know, you might have, you might be looking to do this for $150 and maybe within a six, wall up, uh, six watt power budget, 
Um, so you can do all sorts of wonderful things with, you know, very, very cutting edge technology. But essentially, what can you do in the power, price and performance budget of the OEMs? That's the challenge. Um, so, yeah. you, you know, uh, an F-35 um, fighter plane is more maneuverable than an A380. Um, but, you know, what does that actually tell us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, there's another thing that uh, re related to Ada, since we are on this topic, that, um, you know, you've seen um, a lot of comments being made by experts like uh, Missy Cummings from Duke talking about the difficulty of uh, level three. In other words, more and more features inside the car are getting automated. People become complacent and people will stop really monitoring the system, I mean, monitoring the, uh, the road ahead. Uh, how, how do you feel about this advancement of ADAS, actually, in this case? So really, when we're at level three, what we're talking about is the machine to human handover. So that's the problem. So going from the, the human to the machine isn't a problem, um, but it's coming back um, from the machine to the, the human that is the trouble. And there's something like a 45-second handover period and if you think of a right. car traveling on the, the freeway at 55 miles an hour, you know, how far it travels in 45 seconds or so. Um, there's been yeah. some work done that, uh, um, at Leeds University here in the UK talking about this, this handover period. So really what we've got here is uh, level three, you know, where essentially the OEM is liable for some of the time. Um, this is essentially the problem. And really, this is why we've seen the arrival of what's called level two plus. Uh, and right. various other names, level two plus plus, level three minus. There's all sorts of names for this, but essentially that's what we're seeing is these uh, these highway assist systems where you've got really quite advanced functionality of the system, but it is the human driver that remains responsible at all times. Um, and Supercruise is really the uh, the most advanced system around uh, at this level, but with a, a driver monitoring system and mm -hmm. the operational design dom domain limits as well. Right. So, I mean, in your opinion, that's where the driver monitoring system needs to take a lot of responsibility in a way. Yeah, so I, I, really the, the, the future that I see is, is driver monitoring systems in absolutely every uh, vehicle. Um, because yeah. really what we need is, is that, that, that's essentially where technology can really help humans is, is around distraction and fatigue. Um, and, and this part at which there's starting to be some handover between the, uh, the automated driving features um, and the human driver call that level two plus, level three minus, whatever. Um, that essentially is, is where driver monitoring is absolutely critical. Right. Um, and that's really what we're seeing with, uh, with Super Cruise and the, uh, um, the recently launched system in the Cadillac Escalade, uh, which is a, a seeing machine system. Um, and that's oh, using okay. um, infrared vision um, to track the, the head position, the eye gaze of the driver. Um, and right. looking for um, evidence of fatigue um, in terms of the uh, the blink duration uh, of the driver, yeah. uh, and really you can use those systems in uh, in highway assist level two plus, or you can use it down into level two systems as well uh, to to keep really to keep the driver engaged in the driving task, um, and for the system to know at all times what the the, the driver's uh, engagement level and uh, awareness uh, is. But this is my um, biggest concern, actually. Waymo calls its um, autonomous car. They actually trademarked it. The world's most experienced driver. I mean, that's, I, I just laughed when it's got the little TM mark at the top of that writing. But if an automaker claim they are uh, shipping the world's most experienced driver, and if the world's most experienced driver gets in, in an accident, 
it is the automaker who has to be responsible, isn't it? Exactly that. And, and this is why I think the AV tech industry with their, their huge budgets, but really their, their naivety and their, their, their swashbuckling, you know, we can, we can, we can do everything. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the traditional automakers, they've, they've kind of been here before. And, you know, yeah. and this is essentially really what we can see is that, that, that this industry, the automakers, the, they've really taken a bit of a step back and had a few deep breaths and said, we just don't want to do this. Um, and it, we can see yeah. from the, uh, the videos on YouTube of, of the crazy things that happen with autopilot use in the real world. And essentially the way that, that humans try and, and trick the system into doing crazy things. Um, you know, with the water yep. bottles and the oranges and, you know, getting into the back of the vehicle and, and sleeping and, uh, and, and the, the traditional automakers, you know, that, that is not the sort of business that they want to get into. That might work for Tesla. Um, but, you know, the, the real sensible, you know, the GMs and the Fords of the world, you know, the Toyotas, they don't want to get involved in that at all. So now we see actually divide has become much clearer than Three years ago, I would say. Right? Maybe even three months ago. Uh, and I think really yeah. probably even post-CES, uh, I think there's been this collective uh, wake-up call really within the traditional automakers that they don't want to do this. Um, and there is a lot. Uh, what's really interesting, about 90% of the light vehicles in use in our world, and there's about one and a half billion of them by my estimates, they're level zero. Um, so this argument that, you know, we need to remove human drivers from the task of driving in order to save lives when 90 percent of the vehicles in use are level zero, have no automated driving features whatsoever. Um, it, it seems really, really strange to me. So, you know, what looks to me is, is let's put ADAS into these, these vehicles. Let's put a driver monitoring system in there um, and then let's let the market decide if we need automated driving at all or not. Well said. Thank you so much. Thanks, Juko. Always great to talk to you. To be fair, companies developing autonomous driving technology have demonstrated some truly remarkable capabilities. A video shown by Mobileye at CES was just astonishing. We've got a link on the podcast page if you want to see it. It is truly impressive. We also have a link to the story that Junko referred to in her conversation with Colin, in which the AAA demonstrated vehicle sensor systems failing miserably. You'll want to see that too. The issue isn't that AVs can't do amazing things. The issue is they cannot do amazing things at a reliability rate we expect from any other mission-critical system, which is better than five nines. They won't be anywhere near that reliability for many years to come. Meanwhile, driver assistance technology is maturing, new features can be rolled out progressively, and, and this is the important part, Automakers can start rolling them out sooner rather than later. During last week's podcast, editor Sally Ward Foxton spoke with Mark Lippett, the CEO of Exmos, about a new low cost product that Exmos had developed that was designed to help expand the use of voice recognition in consumer electronics. And then we got another story on voice input from Nitin Dahad, who, like Sally, is also based in London. And then we got yet another story on voice input from Anne-Francoise Palais, who works in Paris. And you know, if one person, just one person, writes a story about voice input, you might think it's an anomaly and you might move on. And if two people do it, in harmony, you may think they're both voice input evangelists and you might not take either of them. But if three people do it, can you imagine three people walking in, singing the praises of voice input, and walking out 
Friends, you might think it's a movement. And that's what voice input is, friends. It's a movement. Voice input and voice recognition and, with AI added into the mix, voice understanding. And all you got to do to join in is to listen to Junko, Sally, Nitten, and Anne-Francoise talking about voice input here on your radio. Sally, you and I talked about this a long time ago, but um, not every consumer product uh, should have a voice interface, in my opinion, but that's my personal opinion. But it seems like everybody is moving that direction. Nitten, you you talked about um, the other day after the CES, uh, one of the car makers uh, talking about adding uh, Alexa functions into the cars, right? So tell me why everybody is so hot to trot putting the uh, microphone or the uh, putting audio um, you know, uh, voice capabilities into so many different products. So, so I, I think it comes to um, one one sort of phrase, and that's human machine interface. What we're seeing is an evolve evolution. Uh, a few years ago, I mean, everybody was trying to do gesture control, and um, uh, I think uh, one of the companies, uh, Mobile World Congress, got a uh, French company, Fogal Sensation, got acquired by Apple. Uh, for that. And then the next thing that came along was voice. And voice seemed to be much more convenient. And, and once Alexa started sort of bedding, bedding into the market, uh, well, first we had Siri and then Alexa, I think people realized that this is such an easy user interface. And that's why I think, you know, we're seeing a lot more consumer products having voice. I know there are some issues around sort of um, contextual you know, sort of noise and, and trying to pick it up. And, you know, we've written a lot about that in you, you have, Sally has, uh, and Francoise has on terms, in terms of the various aspects of trying to figure it out. But I think it's just because people find uh, uh, that that's such a convenient user interface. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I hate to divulge my age, but <laughs> as you get older, you know, you need reading glasses to look at the user interface. And a lot of these devices are getting smaller and smaller. And also, it's not just about the size. The complication of a user interface, in other words, the user interface, you, you always have to, you know, if you buy a new product, you have to learn how to mm. use that device. Mm. And that's really uh, daunting to me. Every time when you pick up a new device, oh God, I got to read the uh, user manual or the I don't know which button to push. I think voice for that matter is uh, presumably effective. I don't know how effective it has been so far, but I think that's the idea, right? Yeah. So, so basically you can say, uh, Alexa or Siri or Google, you know, set set this up for me with my preferences. And yeah, if it's got those preferences in your profile somewhere, it'll set them up. Uh, so I think that's the idea that voices gets, yeah, does away with all that, having to read the manuals, read the instructions, um, you know, trying to figure out what's what. So I think that's, that's my, my take on it. But then, Sally, you and I talked about, like, uh, you know, going into the kitchen, you start talking to coffee maker and toasters and, you know, talking to each of these appliances <laughs> and have them do what you want them to do. I mean, that's kind of a crazy um, scenario, right? It is totally crazy to imagine that, you know, you're speaking to the coffee maker and then the dishwasher responds or something. <laughs> you know, it's, they've got to be set up to work together. But I think if the use case is there, like, say, in the kitchen, maybe I'm cooking, my hands are covered in food, then I need the voice interface to my oven. Yeah. So there are use cases where I think it makes sense, but not everything, right? <laughs> 
I actually have some a, a very funny story to tell from today. Um, so my wife and I uh, had a lunch um, in the kitchen, and um, we had the radio going. And on the radio, they they mentioned a wake word for the Alexa. And so Alexa had a radio going, but on a different channel. So we had the two radios going, even though we didn't want them. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's um, yeah, that, that, that could happen. All right. So let's go a little technical here that um, part of the reason that why this voice market seems to be happening is that chip companies are beginning to realize Let's not let all these um, big technology platform guys like Google, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon to take all the shares or they take all the burdens of uh, uh, voice processing and voice analytics on their own platforms. We are smart enough, chip companies think. We're smart enough so we can do many of these functions, processing and potentially uh, analysis in the future uh, on the edge. So, what are you guys hearing from whom? What are they doing? Actually, the the you know how how they want to take back piece you know take the piece of uh, actions. So yeah, so in the situation where you've got Alexa built into your gadget or your appliance, Amazon are profiting from that basically because they're doing that company's processing, voice processing in their cloud or the AI inferencing in the cloud. And that can cost a lot of money. Um, if it's if it's a coffee maker that we use ten times a day. That can cost like $15 a year per appliance for the manufacturer. So OEMs really want to put this capability into the endpoint device, uh, not just for reasons of consumer privacy, but for cost reasons as well. So, of course, microcontroller, microprocessor makers are responding to this by developing not just AI coprocessors, um, but more like system on chip offerings that target this market that can do keyword detection, basic voice commands. That can be done in the appliance now, right at the edge of the network, even on the tiniest of devices. Right, right. Yeah, the cost is a big part of it. We tend to forget, right? The cost for communication, but also cost for the service as well, right? Yeah, so the cloud isn't free. It's free yeah. to the consumer, but somebody's paying somewhere. Exactly. It's not It's not just the free. I mean, it's the power consumption as well. You know, a, a data center in, in the cloud, you know, it can be hundreds of watts. You know, if you put it on the endpoint or, or, you know, the sensor, you know, it can be milliwatts. So, you know, there's, there's a difference as well in terms of power consumption, in terms of the cost of, you know, connecting. And, and then, you know, where there are sort of, security or uh, privacy issues and there's a uh, uh, privacy as well so yeah i think um putting that into the the smart speaker and you're know, putting a intelligence into that is actually uh the way things are going right so i kind of get that aspirational goal to do much of those things at the edge but exactly where are we today for example are we seeing any sensors who are capable of doing that or are we seeing, um, I don't know, microcontroller companies buying sensor companies to do that? Or are we seeing audio chip companies like Nitin? Um, you wrote about Infineon. Nitin did is it, that 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 story actually told me that uh, Infineon is not just uh, uh, doing uh, interested in helping out companies like AAC and so forth, but they're actually moving themselves into the. Uh, microphone market is that it 
So it's not uh, new. I think uh, when I was doing the research on this, um, I found you know that they've been making the silicon microphones here for a few years, at least two years. I think I saw since the launch of their uh, one of their products, which is in the market now. So it's not new. I think what they and I was quite surprised when I saw uh, Reinhard Ploss, the CEO, uh, focus on silicon microphones, and I didn't actually look at the the specific data. But what he did say is that uh, the, they saw. 50% growth in silicon microphones. And yet, despite revenue declining overall in the quarter, micro, silicon microphones grew. So that's saying something. Alfonso, you wrote something about that, that Infineon has shifted its business model. Can you explain a little bit on that? Yeah, sure. Uh, that's actually based on what uh, your analyst said. Um, they said that they are actually trying to move up um, the value chain, the audio value chain, and be more integrated. Um, the ma- so before they were selling the microphone dies to the uh, to the chip company. Now they just don't want to be in the dye business, right? Exactly. And so they, they, they are moving from selling, as you said, the microphone dyes to players such as uh, Gore-Tec or AAC uh, to moving, uh, to selling complete package microphones. So it's moving from being a MEMS microphone manufacturer to an integrated player doing manufacturing, testing, packaging, and selling. That's why... Uh, they said it's more integrated, and this is a this is a pattern we're seeing with a, a lot of chip companies where they're trying to move up the value chain because there's more value uh, that they can gain in terms of revenue uh, rather than just selling yeah you know, sort of the, the basic chip or the die. But in terms of um, the aspirational goal of doing more on the edge, where are we in terms of uh, doing AI's invoice or? Um, you know, what are you hearing? Actually, uh, Sally's got um, uh, the couple of the Xmos, I think, was a good um, good example of some of the stuff they're doing, as well as I think you're going to see audio analytic, aren't you, Sally? But I think those are two probably good examples of of what is happening in another company called Audio Intelligence, which I saw at CES. They're all sort of trying to figure out, uh, and maybe Sally can explain a little bit more, actually. So for a company like Xmos, for example, they mm. have specialized for a long time in voice processors. Uh, so right. Because their architecture is somewhat flexible, it was a natural move for them to incorporate like AI acceleration capability into their voice processor. Uh, so it's becoming more like a, I guess, a system on chip that you can use has this kind of DSP capability as well as uh, you know mm. AI capabilities and this new breed of like crossover processor, let's say, that yeah. can do uh, these kinds of functions that you'd expect in voice applications as well as AI acceleration. Right. So companies like Exmos in a perfect position, for example, to maybe thinking about acquiring sensor companies, microphone chip companies? What do you think? I don't know. Uh, for Exmos in particular, they're a relatively small company still, so I'm not yeah. sure it would make sense to to go in that direction for them. Right. Uh, but maybe for bigger companies, like NXP has a good offering in this area, maybe for them. Yeah, um, yeah I don't know. Yeah. I think uh, it was Anne-Francoise who quoted um, the one, one of the microphone chip companies saying that, yeah, it's actually adding more and more sensors is something that uh, they would like to do. Can you explain a little bit on that, how sensor companies are aspiring to offer more intelligence 
to the world. Yes, actually, one example is Vesper MEMS, a Vesper technologist. Their piezoelectric MEMS microphone is really known for um, its wake-up word technology uh, to lower the um, power consumption. But uh, moving forward, um, a key trajectory that they are uh, envisioning is uh, adding more intelligence um, so that objects uh, will use multiple types of bio-inspired sensors to learn um, from their environment. That's where we come to contextual um, knowledge. They want uh, the, the idea is really to add more capabilities, like closer to our senses, human or animal senses. That's really the idea. But that's more of a long term. Yes. Yes. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. That, that's visionary yeah. more than that. Yeah. Contemporary. I hear more and more companies talking about adding context to edge processing. What do you think they mean by context in this sense? So, for example, uh, if it's the oven responding to voice commands or listening to voices in the room, uh, maybe if it hears only children's voices, then it switches the oven off, something like that. Ah. So get a fuller picture of the environment that the device is in. Right, right. Oh, that's interesting. One of the things that I heard, this is also anecdotal, um, one of the executives, a chip company executive that I was talking to, he was saying, for example, I have Alexa in a living room and I want Alexa to, to check on my bank account, you know, how much money that I left in my bank account. And Alexa can go back and look at it and things like I have, you know, I don't know, million euro in your bank account or something. And then, uh, um, you know, would you want to divulge that information when your son is in the same room or your guest is in the same room? I guess you wouldn't be asking that question in front of your guests. But, uh, you know, in the real situation, when humans are in the living room situation, we all understand who are in the room, who should be getting that information. But Alexa since it's physically there, but virtually not really understanding the context, could blurt out something that you you wouldn't want Alexa to say. One of the things I think I've been hearing from this contextual point of view is is sort of being able to recognize different voices. Right. Sort of how to, uh, so you you have to train them for those different voices. And then uh, the other thing is just uh, being able to, and I think that was what I was alluding to when I was talking about the car, was being able to sort of filter out stuff which isn't supposed to be there. And I think one of the companies I interviewed last year said, for example, uh, it was a British company doing audio contextual processing. Uh, You don't want to, you know, if there's a gunshot or something, you you want to sort of um, put that out so that, or you you know there's a gunshot so that uh, compared to everything else, you know, you just need to be able to find context in that environment. You know, why why would there be a gunshot in that? environment. So it's those kind of things. And I'm trying to remember the name of the company, but it was quite interesting. Wow. So maybe Alexa can call 911. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. With context goes the emotion, a detection of emotion, maybe to take from privacy issues, yeah. privacy leakage. There could be a way, um, I remember it, that's something uh, the young analyst mentioned, but um, maybe in the near future, microphones will be able to remove emotions from the voice and solely render um, the audio data. Mm. That That's a way 
that would be a way to protect um, the users from um, privacy leakage. Uh, so if somebody is very upset and uh, yelling at the Alexa, Alexa would remo- remove that the yelling and then uh, respond. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it- yeah actually, the idea is not only to detect a person's presence or uh, who's talking, how many people there are, uh, where the people are speaking from, but really sensing the emotion and knowing when the smart speaker can answer, can't react or cannot. So it's it's bringing some awareness, emotional awareness to it. That's maybe visionary again, but mm. that's... So, but you are talking about the detecting the emotion of the user side, right? Because Alexa doesn't have its own emotion. No, no, yeah, no, 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 of course, of course, it's on the user side. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm just looking at the website of um, Audio Intelligence, and these are a company I was speaking to um, a few weeks ago. And they, basically what they're trying to do is uh, separate different audio sources so you can then uh, sort of up- apply it to, you know, specific tasks and, and applications. Yeah, I, I, I keep hearing that too. Yeah, that's interesting. But why do they want to separate that? Because... If you're a no- noisy environment, for example, or or if you've got uh, lots of different uh, voices, yeah. uh, the demo I think I had at CES, he basically uh, applied that algorithm that they're using uh, to a speaker, and it sort of drowned out all the background noise at CES. Uh, uh, so then you can focus on the on the foreground voice. Yeah, that's probably the uh, first order of a business, right? So that they, they Alexa can come up with the right answers. Exactly. Very good. And then I'd, I'd like to close this uh, discussion on the privacy front. You know, you guys already mentioned a couple of uh, issues in regards to privacies. What are you hearing in terms of how do you protect consumers? Uh, um, Alfonso, you use the term privacy, privacy leakage. Yeah. Where does leakage exactly happen and how is it, it needs to be stopped? Well, to stop it, really, the, the closer to the microphone you do the treatment, the processing, the fewer possibilities of privacy leakage there are. Um, so it's really on local, having the local processing. That's really the way to, to prevent that instead of um, sending the data massively to the cloud and having the treatment there. I was just uh, thinking about that. Consider if, you know, right now we're sending everything to the cloud, right? I mean, that's pretty much the way it is right now. So how are they actually using the private information on what applications or on what end? I mean, I have no idea what the, what they're leveraging with our data because we don't know what we are sending and uh, we don't know what they are actually um, analyzing beyond the questions that we ask. Right. Well, th- there has to be uh, some level, I guess, of local intelligence so that it can answer sort of very sort of simple questions based on what it's done with you before. And then and then where it, it encounters something it hasn't before, then it will have to send that to the cloud and, and sort of consult uh, the data in the cloud. And then yeah, what you've asked probably will get registered because it's got it's part of that learning process. So then uh, whether that's anonymized or whether it becomes okay part of that subset of data which serves you know Junko Yoshida or Anne Francoise Pelle or Nitin Dahad or uh, uh, or Sally Ward Foxton. So I think you know it's a case of uh, trying to. We don't know how that data is being sent, where how it's being used, but well, what we're I think the issue is. I mean, from for me. 
the, the issue of privacy is, well, if it can be done locally, that's better. Don't send it to the cloud. Because once it's exactly. in the cloud, you don't know who's yeah. got access to they it. They all say that things are anonymized. No, we're not selling data. But they are doing things so well. <laughs> I mean, we, yeah, we have to take their word for it. And there's no if there is no verification, I mean, there's no reason for us to trust them, in my opinion. <laughs> we exhausted <laughs> the conversation. But no, it's, it's good. I think... Um, you know, I think the market data already shows that voice market is in, in increasing, and uh, um, I think it's very promising. We just want to watch for what else that they can uh, add to it so that the voice recognition, not only recognition, but the understanding, you know, how, how smarter they get, how, how, how much more context they can add, that's all part of our ongoing reporting. Anne Francoise gathered some statistics for the voice input movement from the analysis firm Yole Development. The global market for microphones, micro speakers, and audio ICs is growing at an impressive 6.6% annual rate. MEMS microphones represent 70% of the microphone market. The expectation is that these audio devices together will be a $21 billion market by 2024. And that brings us close to the end of this week's show. Every week, we invite you to step into the Wayback Machine with us to celebrate some of the anniversaries of great moments in the development of the high-tech industry. So, let's get started. On February 26, 1935, Robert Watson Watt and his associate Arnold Wilkins were the first engineers known to have used radio waves to locate an airplane. Working for the British government, they performed their experiment in a town called Daventry, which is about 75 miles north of London. They accomplished the feat using a BBC transmitter and their own receiver. They had a bomber fly back and forth, repeatedly approaching their field. The experiment is widely considered the first demonstration of what would later be called radar. It's an interesting distinction. James Clerk Maxwell had predicted that radio waves would bounce off metal, and years later in the 1880s, Heinrich Hertz proved it. In 1904, a German inventor patented a system that proposed the use of radio waves for such a purpose, and through the 1930s, at least a dozen countries had investigated the idea. But it wasn't until Europe began bracing for war, and Britain started worrying about being attacked by long-range bombers, that there was a compelling reason to develop the technology quickly. By the outbreak of World War II, the UK had 20 radar stations in operation. A plaque in Daventry states that it was the invention of radar, more than any other, that saved the Royal Air Force from defeat in the Battle of Britain. Here's Prime Minister Winston Churchill in 1940 during the Battle of Britain. The gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, and indeed throughout the world, except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. And now we've got radar in our cars to help us avoid collisions, and it's even showing up in our smartphones so that they can tell when we're waving at them. Sometimes you have to stop and realize how amazing technology development can be. Well, that's your weekly briefing for the week ending February 21st. 
The weekly briefing appears every Friday. You can listen on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and of course, find it on our website at eetimes.com, where you can find a transcript of every podcast. Do us a favor. If you like what you've been hearing, share the podcast with your coworkers and friends. This podcast is produced by Asimcore Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.